this morning we are continuing our sermon series looking at the last section of the Apostles' Creed. And today we look at the line, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And so we will be looking at Romans 8 verses 1 through 4, which is on page 1118 in your pew Bibles. Before we go to scripture, would you join me in prayer? Good and gracious God, we thank you for your word. Your word that nourishes and sustains us, that comforts and that challenges us. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive your word. Not mine, not ours, but yours. For you alone are God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but to the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know if this is still a thing today, but way back in the day when I was in high school, many, many years ago, it was all the rage to include a clever or inspiring signature line at the end of your email. You know that line at the bottom of emails in like just kind of gray faded font that magically appears. You don't have to manually enter it every single time. Now most people just use that for contact information. But it used to be pretty common to see quotes there or jokes or elongated descriptions of the sender. And my very clever and deep and meaningful signature when I was 17 years old was a line from the very clever, deep and meaningful movie, The Dead Poets Society. Specifically, this line from Professor Keating, who quotes a Walt Whitman poem to his students, that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. What will your verse be? Another popular email signature I've seen over the years is a line from a Mary Oliver poem called A Summer Day or The Grasshopper that says, Tell me what it is you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. Both quotes ask roughly the same question. You have this one life, this one chance to contribute, to add something to the world, to do something lovely and wonderful and good. What will that thing be? This was the question I was asked, along with every other college student at Calvin University, at the beginning of our university experience. 
As we talked about this idea of vocation and our calling and our purpose in the world, we heard over and over and over again a paraphrase of a quote from Frederick Buechner. Your vocation is where the world's great need and your great passion meet. And so off we went into our four years of education to discover just where that meeting point would be, to figure out what it is we would do with our one wild and precious life, what verse we would contribute to the play, which is not a bad endeavor. Those are all good questions to contemplate. But they do come with an awful lot of pressure. What if, when scanning the horizon of my life, I miss that glowing dot where my great passion and the world's great need meet, and I head off in the wrong direction? What if I don't contribute anything particularly meaningful? How will I know if my contribution is meaningful? And what will I do with this one wild and precious life? What if I wake up one day and discover that it slipped by me? What if I fail at all these things? What if I fail Professor Keating and I fail Mary Oliver and I fail my college professors? What if I fail the people who have loved me and invested in me? What if I fail myself? What if I fail God? And that last question, I think it's a, a worry and anxiety that sits with us rather a lot. Not just about our vocation or purpose in life, but as we think about the whole of our lives. What if I fail God? Because I do. I do fail God. I fail God all the time. I fail him when I don't listen to what he's saying to me. I fail him with my unkind words and my unkinder thoughts. I fail him with my stubborn pride and my insistence that I do know what's best for me. I fail him with my meh, attitude towards spending time in his word and in prayer. I fail God all the time. I fail others all the time. My one wild and precious life is filled with a whole lot of stumbling and missteps and wrongdoing. I'm not sure my contribution is worth all that much when I stop and think about it. And if you're like me, that can weigh pretty heavily at times. We don't measure up we have failed, and we keep on failing. To quote the Apostle Paul in the chapter before this one, we keep doing the things we don't want to do, and we don't do the things that we do want to do. When God looks at this one wild and precious life he gave us, I think he must just shake his head and sigh. And if the story was about us and all the ways that we mess up and aren't obedient and disobey the commandments on a daily basis, then it's that sigh that we would expect to follow the therefore at the beginning of Romans 8. Therefore, God heaved a great sigh of lament. Therefore, God wept. 
Therefore, these people have absolutely no hope of God ever loving them. But that's not how verse 1 reads. Because this story is not, first and foremost, about us and what we have or have not done. It's about God and what God did definitively and decisively do. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in, his, in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. For a long, long time, God's law, the Ten Commandments, the books of Moses, those first five books, the Torah, everything God had told his people about how to live, that was held up to them as the standard, a measuring stick, the thing they needed to follow to be right with God. And for a long, long time, God's people failed to live up to the requirements of the law. And so that law itself couldn't save them. It couldn't make them right with God. It couldn't make people follow it. All the law could do was to convict God's people of their sin, remind them of their guilt, of how far they had to go. And so Paul calls it the law of sin and death. Not that the law itself is sinful, but that it's the law that shows us how broken our lives are. Just like a Mary Oliver quote about a wild and precious life, beautiful as that quote may be, can make us feel as though we can never quite live up to that Mary Oliver quote. And again, that's where God could have left us, struggling to keep up, to be good, to be obedient, and failing constantly, dragged down by our sin, and then even worse off as we carry the weight of the guilt of our sin. But he didn't leave us there. He set us free. He set us free by sending his own son into the world to become like us, bearing the likeness of sinful flesh. Not sinful himself, but human like us, bearing our humanity, a humanity that is all too often corrupted by sin. And this son, Jesus, came to be a sin offering. In the temple worship of the Old Testament, the sin offering was given to atone, to reconcile, to make up for especially unwilling sins. Those things that Paul alluded to in chapter 7, that which we don't want to do but keep doing and that which we don't do but should. The things we know are wrong, the things that make us aware of all the ways in which we have failed God. And the people, the priests on behalf of the people, would have to have made these sin offerings regularly to atone for all that they had or had not done to make themselves right with God over and over and over again. 
But Jesus was a sin offering just once. Jesus took all those sins upon himself and God judged those sins, condemned our sins in Jesus just once, but with eternal results. Which means that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. The big theological term for this is justification. We have been justified. We have been made right with God. The Heidelberg Catechism, our summary of what we believe, answers the question, what do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins by saying, I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no longer remember any of my sins or my sinful nature, which I need to struggle against all my life. Rather, by grace, God grants me the righteousness of Christ to free me forever from judgment. We have been set free from the burden of our guilt, from the fear that we can never measure up, can never do anything we're supposed to, free from the shame of tripping up and making mistakes and failing God and each other and ourselves over and over again. We have been forgiven. And then Romans 8 continues, and we hit verse 4, and we get a little confused. And so Jesus condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but to the Spirit. Well, hold up, Paul. Didn't you just say that the law cannot be fully met in us? That we can't keep the law? Isn't that exactly what we have been set free from? Well, he said we can't uphold the law in ourselves, in our human flesh. Captive as we are to all the ways and lures of sin. But those who are in Christ no longer live according to the ways of the flesh, our sinful humanity. For if we are in Christ, we have been given the Spirit, His Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of life, the Spirit of power, the Spirit of conviction, the Spirit that does in us what we cannot do ourselves. We cannot keep the law. But the Spirit can. The Spirit empowers us to obey the law, equips us to, obey, to keep the law, and softens our hearts so that we desire to follow the law. And this ultimately is the purpose of Christ's sacrifice for us. He died and rose again, not just to save us from our sins, but to make it possible for us to live lives that glorify God. Christ died that we might be sanctified. Another big theological word that simply means to become holy to grow in obedience to God, to grow in faith, to live more and more the life that he, through his law, has called us to. For it is a good life, a whole life. It's a beautiful 
life. To live in obedience to the law is not what saves us, but we are saved to live in obedience to the law. To live in obedience to the law, says John Stott, is not the ground of our justification, but is the fruit of it. We are not slaves to the law, but in Christ we are free to keep the law. And so perhaps the better question is this. What is it you plan to do with this one wild and precious forgiveness? What is it you plan to do, not to earn salvation, but because you have received salvation? What is it you plan to do, not out of guilt or fear, but out of gratitude? What is it you plan to do, not by struggling to prove your own power, but in surrender to the life-giving power of the Spirit? What do you plan to do now that you are free from condemnation? This past Monday, 45 students received bachelor's degrees from Calvin University. Students from the graduating classes of 2022, but also 2021 and 2020, all celebrated together due to delays in this celebration from COVID. These students had spent the last four or so years in classes wondering about their vocation, about their calling, about what they will do with their one wild and precious life. But these students, perhaps more than most students at Calvin University, have thought about this question in terms of what they will do with their one wild and precious forgiveness. Because this graduation ceremony took place behind prison walls at Hanlon Correctional Facility in Ionia, Michigan. And most of the graduates of these three classes will spend the rest of their lives in prison. But these lives will be radically different now, even if the day-to-day routine and the scenery stays the same. These lives have been changed by the truth of the gospel. In 2016, I had the privilege of attending the commencement ceremony at the end of the first year of this program. And in that ceremony, one student showed a PowerPoint presentation that he had made in class. It depicted the other students in his year, one by one, first their mugshot, and then a picture of them with their families, either during visiting hours or before they had entered prison. And at the end of the PowerPoint was this statement. For so long, we have been defined by the very worst thing we have done. We are called murderer, abuser, thief. But now we are defined by the gospel. We are called child of God. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Some of these students have been released from prison 
and they found jobs working for renewal in the same areas where they once caused harm. But most of the students will remain within prison walls, transforming the culture within the prison system, one person at a time. Behind prison walls, but set free. Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious forgiveness? Would you pray with me? And so, Lord God, we thank you that we have been forgiven. We stand in humbled awe at the lengths you went to to restore us to right relationship with you, giving your own son to die on our behalf. And we pray now that we might not take this forgiveness, this freedom for granted, but that we would live in grateful obedience bringing honor and glory and praise to the one who set us free. May we live by grace and grace alone. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.